often when I talk to my dad about what I'm preaching about, he'll look at me and he'll have some little sonnet of, you know, some little gem of information. And I told him it was Judges 4, and I told him about jail and the tent peg, and he just looked at me, put his hands in his pockets, and he went, yeah, good luck with that, son. That's all he said. Um, but, um, and the more I read it, and the more I read this Old Testament, and Joe was right in his introduction, there is, there is so much to learn in some of the darker passages of the Scripture. It is so good that it is there. It shines a mirror on our souls. And we have got to look into it. All Scripture is God-breathed. He breathed it all out to speak to all of us. So we should be thankful for it. And we should open its pages, and we should look difficultly. It's definitely not good English, but we should look... We should look into it and stare into its pages and try and uh, glean the wisdom uh, from it. From the beginning of human history, as far back as we can go, uh, we knew our success as a species would depend on our wisdom. We figured it out pretty quickly. Um, and, and to start off with, it was pretty much just being able to make a fire or having a bigger club than whoever lived next door to you or being able to run faster than whoever lived next door to you or whatever it was like that. That was wisdom. But as we've progressed... There's been different notches, different landmarks on our wisdom journey. So um, Aristotle said that it was very wise if we could live free of pain. That was, that was as wise as you could get. And we've added little benchmarks to this as we've gone through. We've thought that wisdom was just about knowing stuff. Know as much stuff as you can. Then we've also said that it was about societal rules. Wisdom works if we're all on the same page and there are rules. And more recently, we think that wisdom, we've, we've, we've figured out that we can't know all the stuff, and society is not going to abide by all the rules, so we're going to need to adapt. So there's a sense that wisdom is figuring out, you know, from where you're at, figuring out where to go next. I don't know if you watched the 7 Million and Counting documentary with Chris Packham on BBC One. Um, this week, it'd be on iPlayer. It's worth a watch. Interesting. You might not agree with everything that's in it, but it's interesting. It's one of these documentaries that opens up the problems of the world, where it's a growing population, and we are consuming so much. And so here are all the associated problems, and you kind of look on in horror, and it kind of eggs you on to look on in horror. Uh, but at the end of it, they had these four experts, really interesting. After all the horror show of how many, you know, all the problems that we're going to have, they all assessed that the world could thrive if we were just wise with what we were doing. Not just struggle on, not just get by, but thrive. Whatever the questions, our universe, we're pretty agreed as a species that the answers lie in our wisdom, wherever that is. One of the prevailing thoughts about coming to church is that you need to leave your wisdom at the door. A lot of people think that about church. You come into church and it's great. You can have a spiritual experience. You can have a good sing. You can have blind faith, but stop thinking when you get there. Here's Here's the thing we'd like to see as Christ Church. I think breathed into our ethos for the last 10 years, we believe passionately the Bible says you've got to think. You've got to search for wisdom when you come in here. When you open up the pages of the Bible, it screams from the belly of it. It screams, think about this. Read through uh, any of the wisdom literature, any of the Psalms, those sorts of things. It says, look out, look at each other, look at the other people, look at the heavens, look at the world around you, and think about it. David says over and over again, meditate. Think about this stuff. Jesus, think about what Jesus did. There are commands, Jesus gives us commands, but so often he tells us stories to get us to think. 
The Bible implores you to think, but in the days that we live in, it implores us to think differently. This is a story. It might not seem it on the outset. This is a story about wisdom. Yep, Tempeg story. This is a story about wisdom. It's a story where Israel is challenged to think about what it means to live a wise life. And they're going to get a shock so that they might see. And we kind of see that in the first two scenes of the story, verses 1 through 3 and then 4 on a little bit. You can kind of see that it's about wisdom. There is this, at the start, this warrior nation, Israel, doing a lot of fighting, but they are defeated. And they look on at this amassed army. Now, the, 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 the leader of the Canaanite people at this time, Jabin, Jabin, I think, Tracy, you got it way. You did awesome uh, with, the, with all the words. I look on in terror, as you did so well. Um, his name means wise. And his wisdom was this empire. And this empire... Reference, you see the reference to the chariots, 900 chariots. Remember, I think it's World War I. It was pretty much won or greatly changed by the influx of tan- tanks. You know, the, you see the tank on the horizon and you're like, man, there's power in these tanks. And, when, and as this story opens up, you can see the oppressed Israelites look on and the story is of the wisdom of Jabin and he's got this army of tanks on his side. So... There's that element of wisdom, and then it, it, it sort of swoops over to the next scene in the story, and there is, there is this woman, Deborah. Now, if you look in Scripture, wisdom is often, or maybe even always, referred to as a woman. And she's there in the midst of all this chaos down the road. She's there chilling under her own... Like, she's just so awesome, is Deborah. I'm going to egg her up all the way. She's just ridiculously awesome. She's chilling under this, her own, she's, the palm tree looks like it's named after her. And the people, what's happening? The people are coming, flocking to her up the hills to get her counsel, to gain her wisdom. This is a story about wisdom. It's the story of two women, Deborah and Jael. And we're going to ask two questions as we make our way through it. What did it mean to Israel, this warrior nation. What did this story mean to them? Because it's a pretty frightening story. And there there is some meaning for them. And then there is some overflow meaning to us reading it thousands of years later. So what did it mean to them? And what did it mean to us? First, let's jump in verse 1. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. Just listen to how resplendent and how awesome uh, Deborah is. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah, even that expression, holding court, she holds sway, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. And then I'll just jump into the next little sentence. She sent for Barak. Just notice, notice her status in this little opening gambit, this little introduction. She's wise. Everyone clambers around her. She's got... So this is a patriarchal society. All the stories in the Bible, just about all the stories up to this point, are all about blokes doing stuff. This is the first time we see a woman exalted. And listen to how she 
how she goes about her business. She summons Barak. Barak's, the meaning of Barak, maybe even his nickname is Thunderbolt. God's Thunderbolt, God's like fierce warrior. And this woman, Deborah, has rose to prominence and her authority is such that she just beckons him and he comes. Her name, depending on how you pronounce it exactly, either means Queen Bee, everything is gravitating around her, or living word. And she is a woman, Deborah, awesome woman. This is the issue. God's people, as we know, start of every little chapter, it's pretty similar. They're captive because of the sins that they've done, and this land that is promised to them, that they would live in marked out as God's people, they are under the authority of the Canaanites. Again, this is the issue, this is the problem. And Deborah has a plan, you see in verse 6 and 7. It's an ambush kind of a plan. That's how it looks to me. She says to Barak, God's thunderbolt, who doesn't, in this chat, or these next coming verses, sound anything like a thunderbolt. You go and rally the troops. You go and get 10,000 men. They'll come and follow you. I'm going I'm to lure Cesera. I fumble over that. I'm going to lure him towards the Kishron Valley. I'm going to lure him into that space. And then when I lure him there, you, you, know, you just storm down and we'll take him. It will be an ambush. And thunderbolt Barak in this next moment just says the kind of the most pathetic, wimpyish line I've ever heard a Thunderbolt superhero say in my life. He says, I'll go if you go. You, know, you, you, want, you read him, you're like, come on, fella. Come on, dig in a little bit, show a bit of something. I'll go if you go. Deborah looks back at him and with her prophetess head on, I guess, says, that's fine. I'll go with you because I'm awesome and I'm Deborah. But the honor is not going to be yours or even any man's. The honor is going to go to a woman. So you've got this increasing picture of Deborah, you know, becoming increasingly necessary for this story. It's like even Thunderbolt Barak can't get his army to the front line without hearing that Deborah is going to come with him. I don't know what he's thinking. Maybe he's thinking everyone won't come with me if I've not got Deborah on side. She has got such a strong influence. And then comes the next couple of lines which give you a real shape of the story. Remember last week there were some, there were some footnotes within the story that, you got to, you, that really made it, um, made it accessible to you. If you dug into the story, it made it really accessible. These, verse 14 is the line that makes sense of this battle scene and this story. Verse 14 says, This is the day... The Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. And then she says, has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Now, you've got to dig into this and say, well, what? How? How did God go ahead of them at this point? And for this, so this last, last week's story was a lot about the story around the campfire. It was a lot about whodunits and lots of little clues along the way. Remember Ehud, left hand, right hand, all that kind of stuff. Got a bit nasty in the end. This story needs you to know a little bit about geography, a little bit about the weather, a little bit about warfare, and a little bit about song. Believe it or not, it's all in there. Scramble through that text. It's an awesome, it's an awesome little story. And to get the clue, you've got to skip on. I don't know if Paul's going to preach on this next week. He might do to the song that comes in chapter five. And there is a clue to what happens. <clears throat> Why? 
why Deborah can look on with confidence and say, has the Lord not gone ahead of you? It's chapter 5, verse 19 to 20. It says this, and it's kind of a poem and a song. From the heavens the stars fought against his era. The river Kishron swept them away. What, What had she seen, Deborah, from the top of Mount Tabor? If you've ever been um, in a big, you know, on the mountaintop, on top of a valley with a river between, it's poetic language. From the heavens, the stars fought against his era. The river Kishron swept them away. The rains came. The rains came tumbling down. Now, initially in this story, there's these 900 chariots, and this is not a very bad place to be for Caesarea and his army, because they can maneuver around. They're in a strong spot. They're fine. They're comfortable. They're quite happy. Up at the top of the hill, you're looking down. The rain starts, and Deborah says, Go! Now! Now, I don't know how high the hill was, if she could see the fact that the rain was coming down, and these tanks, effectively, chariots, were going to get stuck in the mud. I don't know if it was just her faith, but she said, Go! Now! God has given them into our hands, and they flew down off of Mount Tabor and won the battle in a heartbeat. That's the story of Deborah. The next story, maybe it's the story you sick individuals came to hear me talk about today, is the story of Jael, who really should be in jail. Um, Two incidents to note up to this point, and you might have missed them in the text, but they're worth just really noting. Caesarea got away. Did you see that he got away? Often happens, doesn't that, in, in, the, in any, any of these battles, you know, he's, he's the commander-in-chief. Some guy, you know, his right-hand man says to him, look, we're getting beat here. Scramble. You make, you make a run for it. And he runs away. There's another incidental that is not very incidental at all. If, and, it, and maybe, I don't know if you listened to it as Tracy was reading it through, but like, there's a little bit about a house move right in the middle of this crazy fight scene. Did you see that? And you're going, why is that in there? Meanwhile, Heber, and this is verse 11... Heber and Jael, they move away. Now, there is a backstory here that's worth digging around at. Bear with. Heber is a Kenite. The Kenites were metal workers. What was Heber doing? So originally, he was with the Israelites doing his metal working. But up north, up north where the Canaanites were, they were making chariots for, you know, for fun. There was work up north, so he defected. He went up north, and his wife, somewhat reluctantly, it would seem by the way the story goes on, went with him. And you see both these, and you think, at least the way the storyteller tells it, these are quite incidental little things. Not incidental at all, as Caesarea, perhaps the guy who could re-rouse another army and could win this battle in the end, makes his way to what he thinks is going to be a safe house with the Kenites, and he falls down and he gasps and he's like, oh, yes, I can collapse here. You know, my skin is saved for another day. Little does he know that jail, who should be in jail, burns with anger for the Israelite God. And given half a chance, not even half a chance, as he sleeps, she used her tent-making skills for some more sinister purpose. And she noticed the extra detail the writer wants you to notice this. She's done him in. She buries his, the tent peg through his temple and into the ground. I think if it's into the ground, then they're dead. I think that's the marker. And he's dead. This is her story. What do we do 
with these stories? What does it tell Israel? What does it tell us? The first thing it tells us about God's wisdom is that he has determined, he has determined to demonstrate it to us. He has determined to demonstrate it to his people. See how they look back at the end. Is that the, is that the last verse? Verse 23 and 24. See how they look back and summarize this period of the judges. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until Canaan, until they destroyed him. Israel looks back. The storyteller looks back on this whole long, bloody conflict, and he says, "Do you know what? Do you know what the moment was?" Do you know what the, you know, we fought and we fought and we fought and we fought. We've been oppressed, we've been oppressed, we've been oppressed. And yet all, all the rest of this period of history gets forgotten. And they say that was the day. That was the day when it all turned around. And it turned around on the almost, it seems, incidentals of Heber the Kenite moving house, wandering into Jael's house, and Deborah's heroics. It all hinged on these women. And as the Israelites listen into this story being retold, they see only the hand of God. And this, it's almost like the masculine warrior wisdom that has been Israel's way of life for 20 or 30 years or over and over again is completely undone as God says, look what I am going to do in the days of men, in the days where warriors of men and we fight all the time, I am going to win this battle using women. It's funny, isn't it? Often in life, when do we notice God's wisdom? When do we see it? See, as they look back, they see that they see the moment that it was changed. Isn't it, isn't it often the way that we think God's nowhere in our story, and then when we look back and we see the tiny little incidentals as we go along, and we're like, oh my word, that was... That was not about me. That was not even about a house move. That was not even about this. That was God's hand. God showed the nation of Israel his awesome power through the victory of these women, just ordinary women. Now, sometimes I think we look at the story of the cross, and often we look at it and we go, why, how, why has he gone with that? Why is this the story? Why is this right in the middle of the Bible? Why, why is this the focal point? It's, it's this humble guy who gets beaten up and then, and then killed. Why is that the story? It's because God wants us to know that it's him who saves. That's where the wisdom is. And I say this, I draw our hands to this because we're going to spend, I'm going to spend, and I wrestle with it, we're going to spend the next 20 or 30 years of our lives trying to save ourselves and thinking that that's wise and using our own wisdom and trying to build good lives for ourselves, you know, with, with, with wisdom. But the real wisdom, God says, lies in realizing, seeing that cross and realizing that it's God who saves you. That's first point. Second bit of wisdom. There's wisdom in this story in holding on to the promises of God in every circumstance of life. There's a scene in this passage that is worthy of a movie in and of itself, I think. As the, as the Canaanites 
are in the Kishron Valley on their fine chariots on top of the world thinking they're going to win the day. The heavens open, the rain comes down and Thunderbolt Barak with his 10,000 warriors is at the top dithering about whether it's his day or not with his eyes on the chariots that, that have oppressed his nation forever. And Deborah screams into his lug hole, go, God has given this to us. She saw the rain coming down. Here's what happened in this moment. Now there's thousands of, I'm going to guess, pretty much blokes on this battlefield. Thousands of them. Now they were all, there were people looking at the chariots getting sunk in the mud. There were people looking at being oppressed for years. There were people thinking about the bloody conflict that was coming. There was only one person in this whole battle scene that saw all this, but held just as, equal, just as tightly and was just as aware of God's promises to Israel in this moment. There's all this that's going on. And Deborah, at the same time as she sees all this, she sees this, the promise that God had given, that God had given this land to them already. It was already theirs. This amazing promise. And it totally transforms the possibilities. So I, I think... Part of, the way that, part of the way that I live my Christian life often is that I know about these awesome promises of God, that he says he's going to be with me always and he's, going to, he's making a place for me in eternity. And if I draw near to him, he'll draw near to me. I know about these promises, but I kind of hold them there. And I have them when I read my Bible on a morning or I have them here when I'm at church with you good people. But then in the, in the nitty-gritty of life, I'm just, I just go for it myself. I just use my own wisdom. Do you see what Deborah draws us to? She, she has her eyes where nobody else does on the promises of God and the possibilities are amazing. Victory is theirs. I want to tell you a story about my mother-in-law um, who I love with all my heart. Um, so my family has quite a strong connection with uh, East East Africa, Tanzania in particular, and it, it's got a hold. I've married into a family who love and care for deeply this part of the world. And sometimes, um, to my shame, I don't, I don't have that same care or that same passion. When I, think about, when I think about that part of the world, when I think about Moshi and Mombasa and the places um, that Jude's family has a real care for, I think of a plane that's going to be... 14 hours in the sky. I think of a plane that I can't get on. I think of sun that will burn my white skin. I think of food that I won't be able to eat. I think of a language that I am unable to speak. I think about all of these things first. And my mother-in-law, God bless her, she sees all that and she's just as scared of flying as me. Her skin is just as fair as mine. She has all, all of those similar things. And yet she sees, at the same time as she sees all that, she sees the promises of God. If God, if God has sent us out into the world, that he will, you know, the Great Commission, if he has sent us out, then all authority is his. And he's going to be with us always. And she sees that part of the world, and she sees all of those promises. And now, 30 years down the line, there is a fantastic Bible school. There is a great orphanage. There's a kindergarten. There are families that have grown up in Christianity. And we know that the way the mission story has gone, they now bless the UK with their wisdom. It's totally turned around on its head because 
she held just as strongly in her hands the promises of God. Imagine you go out to your, you know, you look at, you look at the, the canteen when you go into your work's lunch. Imagine you walk, you walk out into there and imagine that you looked at that canteen and just as strongly as you saw those people that make your life miserable or people that you've got to tolerate or whatever else it is, just as strongly as you see that, you saw the promises of God, that he goes with us, that he loves all, that he saves, that he cares. Imagine you walked into a canteen and you had those promises. See what happens in those moments? Changes the canteen, changes the possibilities. Those are the wisdoms. Round up. There's a dilemma under it all, though, isn't it? Because I've not talked about the lady yet with the tent peg. She hovers over us. Are you going to not deal with the lady with the tent peg? Jail that should be in jail. What do we do with these stories about these heroes? Do we look at them and follow them? Do we see these women and go, these are women to follow? The tale really reveals, I think, a real-life dilemma for us. What does it mean what does it mean to be wise in times of injustice? It's a real dilemma for us. What does, it look, what does being wise look like when everything around us is unfair? Because we look at jail and we say, no matter what goes on, I don't get, I don't get a temp peg out. I don't do anything like that. My wife uh, recently read The Tattooist of Auschwitz. And as is her way when she's reading a book, tells me everything, so I don't need to read it, tells me everything uh, that happens in the story. And as she's telling me this, I'm, I'm, my heart's breaking, but at the same time, I'm, not, I'm struggling to know what to do with this character, Selka. So basically, the story is, she, as far as I can figure it out, and these, these might not always be the right, right terms, she al- almost prostitutes herself to a, to a German officer to survive the horrors of Auschwitz. Basically, that's kind of the storyline, Some, something like that. She... And, and if, if you compartmentalize that story, if you talk about the idea of prostituting yourself for any kind of good, it, immediately you go, that's evil, that's, that's the worst thing I've ever heard of in my life. Of course it is. And yet, when you read this story, and I'm not saying, I'm not dropping on any side of right or wrong here, when you read this story, you at least go, oh man, it's complicated. That's the first thing I think that we see in this story. Wisdom in times of injustice is complicated. Our just actions I think, are always more solid than we realize by the circumstances that are around us. So we can look back at contempt with j- at jail, and maybe even Selka, if you want, but we should realize in that same time that God, I think God looks at us, I think this is partly what's in the story, this is partly what we're to learn from jail, God looks at us probably the same way from his holiness and his gloriousness. He looks at us as we might see jail in the mess of sin, thinking that we are nailing it. That's the first thing. Wisdom in times of injustice is complicated. Second thing is I think we're more like jail. I think it means, it reminds us that we're probably more like jail than we ever want to think. I don't know if you follow the footy. I follow the footy, and I'm a Leeds fan, so I'm happy to see the demise of Man United at any, at any point. And they lost heavily last week, um, but maybe you read the papers, and they were singing 
Not just in their ones and twos, but in their thousands. And I know lots of Manu fans, top blokes, all lovely people. They were singing, I'll, 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 I'll make it as genteel as I can, that they wanted the chairman to die in their thousands. Can you imagine that? In their thousands. We want him to die. And maybe you think, well, I would never utter those words. As I was thinking about this kind of thing, I remembered <clears throat> um, the best fight I ever saw when I was at school. Like the best ever fight. It was at the end, the end I, can rem- I can remember it very vividly. At the end of the, the, the school gate, and it's great when there's a fight, isn't it? You, you, the, everybody's rushing towards it. And there was huge injustice in this fight. Huge injustice. Because I knew the guy that was getting beaten up for a start, but the guy that was beating him up was bigger than him. He was from a couple of years up. And I, you know, I ran over appalled, rightly moved by the injustice of the circumstance. And then the most amazing thing happened. A kid, I knew, I knew him in my year, the least likely awesome fighter ever took it upon himself to deal with the big kid. It was amazing. And he thundered in and just was the best right hook I have. I can remember it very, I can remember this guy's face flick, flipping off to one side and over he went. But not only over he went, he, he, this, this, young, this little guy didn't stop laying into him, punch after punch after punch. And what happened was, the rest of us watching around became like animals. I was, I was initially rightly motivated by the injustice, but as I'm looking in, I'm shouting horrifically for more, for more. And I had no idea I was doing this till Mr. Chilton, who was my tech teacher, was a Christ, Christian guy, knew my mum and dad, all of that, looking at me aghast, just with horror. And I, as, he, as I caught his eye, me wanting more blood, I realized what I had become. Initially, probably pretty well motivated, but just corrupted. This has been a slow realization for me throughout my Christian life. I think I am most of the time fueled with good intentions. Like probably most people I know, but when I'm confronted with injustice, and there are nastier words for it than the words I'm going to use, I quickly become... And I have the capacity to become a real idiot. My heart is still a bit corrupted. And it shines out really quickly. And what happens to me more often than not, maybe you do this too, I, I, the way that I act is not just, I kind of just think I'm a better person than they are. It's really ugly. And if that doesn't happen, the emotion of the moment and the circumstances around me, they carry me on and they drive my justice, and whatever happens, I perpetuate things. Come to realize there's only one thing, at least in me, that breaks this kind of cycle. And it's not, it's not more rules, it's not better philosophies, it's not living without any pain. I don't know if you've ever done that thing where you look at the story of the cross and you try and figure out which character you'd be. You ever done that where you look at the story of the cross, you see it laid out, and you look around all the characters and you think, well, where would I be? What would I have done that day? Whereabouts am I in that crowd? I'm not, me personally, I'm not, I'm not cool or brave enough to have been one of the thieves on the cross. I would never have done anything like that. I think I'm smart enough to have been an official sort of person. They wouldn't have let me join the Roman army. Certainly not Jesus. I'm one of the people in the crowd. Reluctantly, probably. And maybe even with good intentions. And I'm shouting, or I'm at least shouting so I don't get beaten up by other people. Crucify him. 
crucify him. I'm in that crowd. I'm like jail. That's who I am. And I hear Jesus from that cross shouting out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, see the only thing that stops me from being the self-righteous idiot that I can be is when I live knowing that that man forgave me, knowing that all the justice was wrapped up there, knowing that he is God and he sees all. That, that is my only hope. That is the only thing that breaks this chain of sin. These women are not models to follow, but they're examples of good, maybe even great people who are immersed in sin. And they don't point to themselves. They point us to somewhere else. They point us to Jesus.